Here's another study from Calvary Chapel, Rochester. Uh, hey, we're in Hebrews, and uh, we're in, actually in Hebrews chapter 5, but I want to kind of pick it up in Hebrews chapter 4, at the end of chapter 4. So if you want to turn in your Bibles to Hebrews chapter 4, uh, and we'll pick it up at verse 14. If you, have a, if you don't have a Bible and you'd like to, have, you know, like to follow along, just raise your hand, we can get you one. Anybody need a Bible? <coughs> All right. I usually like people to have a Bible, that way you can make sure I'm not uh, leading you astray in my teaching. But. All right, um, verse 14. Seeing then that we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast our confession. For we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses, but was in all points tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us therefore come boldly to the throne of grace that we may obtain mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Now let's go into chapter 5, verse 1. For every high priest taken from among men is appointed for men in things pertaining to God that he may offer both gifts and sacrifices for sins. He can have compassion on those who are ignorant and going astray since he himself is also subject to weakness. Because of this, he is required as for the people, so also for himself, to offer sacrifices for sins. And no man takes this honor to himself, but he who is called by God, just as Aaron was, so also Christ did not glorify himself to become high priest, but it was he who said to him, You are my son, today I have begotten you. And he also says in another place, You are a priest forever, according to the order of Melchizedek. As we've been going through the book of Hebrews, uh, the the writer of Hebrews is is explaining to these Hebrew believers that Jesus is better, better than the old covenant, better than Moses, whom the Jewish people revered. And now he's speaking about how Jesus is better than the Levitical high priest. Now, they both, uh, Jesus and the Levitical high priest, they both have compassion because they can identify with sinners. Jesus was born and lived as a man, so he, he can identify what you and I go through. But the Levitical high priest, being a man, was also beset with weakness, right? He was, all subject, he was also subject to sin himself. And so the Levitical high priests, they would have to offer sacrifices for their own sin as well as for the sin of the people. Um, And that's, of course, not the case with Jesus. Uh, But the Levitical high priest can only identify with a sinner as a sinner. You know, it's kind of like, uh, you know, if you're married and maybe you're having some marriage problems and so you you call your best friend and uh, you call Joe up. Maybe Joe's your best friend and you say, Joe, man, my marriage is just, it's on the rocks. I'm having such a tough time. And you start explaining to your friend everything that's going on. And your friend says, man, oh man, my marriage is bad too. I can totally identify with you. You know, you kind of get that comfort because someone can commiserate or commiserate with you. Uh, And so the next question, right, is, well, you know, what are you doing about it? How how are you coping? How, you know, how, how things worked out for you? And, and then if they were to say, well, yeah, I'm getting divorced. You know, it's like, okay, you, you got to benefit from the fact that they could commiserate, they could identify with you, but they weren't able to offer any solutions. 
See, the high priest could identify with you and I, but he was a sinner just like you and I. Jesus, however, not only identifies with you, but he was victorious. He did not sin. And so Jesus is better than the uh, Levitical high priesthood because he can provide help. And, uh, of course, like Aaron, who was appointed the first high priest, Jesus also was appointed by God. Aaron was appointed by God. And so Jesus didn't take the role of high priest in order to glorify himself. In fact, throughout scriptures, Jesus, Jesus came as very humble to earth. Um, but let's continue on here in verse 7. It says, "...who in the days of his flesh, when he had offered up prayers and supplications with vehement cries and tears to him who was able to save him from death, and was heard because of his godly fear, though he was a son, yet he learned obedience by the things which he suffered." And having been perfected, he became the author of eternal salvation to all who obey him, called by God as high priest, according to the order of Melchizedek, of whom we have much to say and hard to explain, since you have become dull of hearing. When did Jesus cry vehemently? It's an interesting word, by the way. But why did Je- when did Jesus cry that way? You know, there are many times in the Bible, in the, in the Gospels, where Jesus went off by himself and prayed alone before the Father. And those prayers between Jesus and the Father, they're not recorded for us. We, we don't know that intimate time that Jesus spent with the Father. We don't know the nature of his prayers during those times. But the Holy Spirit has recorded one prayer in particular for you and I when Jesus prayed and cried out vehemently with tears, and that was on the night of his arrest in the Garden of Gethsemane. There he was, you know. He, he, his disciples were with him in the garden, and then he took his closest three, the inner circle of disciples, Peter, James, and John. He brought them with them further into the garden and said, just stay with me, I'm, I'm agonizing. And uh, they, of course, slept. And during that time, Jesus agonized over what was about to happen, his death. And not, maybe not so much the pain or the, 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 thing, the thought of being crucified, but I think more of just the realization that his fellowship with the Father was going to be broken. Jesus had never exper- experienced broken fellowship with the Father, and that, I think, was what weighed on him more than anything else. But in any event, Jesus agonized uh, what he would experience there on the cross. And in solitude... Because those guys were asleep, he cried and he wept vehemently before the Father. That word vehemently means forcibly, powerfully, boisterously. I mean, you could just, he was probably just wailing before the Father there. You know, we tend to sanitize Jesus, don't we, in our, in our minds and in our thoughts about who Jesus was. And it starts from when we're children, you know, when we sing Away in a Manger at Christmas time, right? I always used to think about this. Little baby Jesus, you know, he's in Mary's arms. You know, all the other babies cry and they poop their diapers and everything. But little Jesus, no crying he makes. And so we get this idea, wow, Jesus is just this perfect baby. Listen, Jesus was a human like you and I. He probably soiled his diapers. In fact, I'm sure he soiled his diapers like you and I did when we were babies. Jesus probably cried at two in the morning and woke up Mary and Joseph. You know, Jesus was a man. He was a human like you and I. But we tend to gloss over Jesus. We tend to gloss over his emotions. 
You know, throughout the gospel, Jesus was a very emotional person. The Bible records it. Uh, He was angry with the sellers of the doves and the money changers at the temple. He was angry with them. Why? Because they were personally profiting off of those poor pilgrims that were traveling to Jerusalem who wanted to worship the Father. And they, they came to the they came to the temple and they brought their sacrifices from wherever they were from. They brought this, this, this dove with no blemishes on it. They brought it up and the priest had to certify it. And the priests, they, they had a little side business going on. They had, you know, they had the doves, they had the money. And so they would say, ah, oh, this dove, it's, no, it's not kosher. You can't, you can't offer this to the Lord. You'll have to buy one of the doves here that the dove sellers would, you know. So then they would sell the doves and of course they would make a profit. Not only that, but you couldn't bring whatever coins you had. You had to buy the temple coin, and they had an exchange rate going. They they were making money. They were personally profiting off of people that wanted to worship the Lord God. And Jesus was angry. He was angry with them. Jesus was also angry. The Bible records he was angry with the Pharisees in the synagogue. Remember the man with the withered hand? And Jesus wanted to heal that man. But it was the Sabbath. And the the Pharisees were all like, man, you're going to heal him on the Sabbath? And Jesus was angry because they were more concerned with entrapping Jesus than seeing a person healed of an ailment that he had all his life. That made Jesus angry. The Bible says he looked on them with anger. Jesus was a very compassionate person. The multitudes came to him. He was worn out at the end of a day of ministering. And he saw all these people coming. And the Bible says that Jesus had compassion on them. Why? Because they were like sheep without a shepherd. He he was agonizing over the fact that the the religious leaders of those days, they were were lording it over the people. And and it broke Jesus' heart. He had compassion on them. He had compassion on people whenever they cried out to him. The disciples are like, no, hey, 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 don't bug the master. He's, he's an important guy. He's got big, big speeches to do and everything. No, no, no. Jesus had compassion on anyone who cried out to mercy for him, to him. The Bible also records that Jesus wept many times. He wept over the death of Lazarus, his friend, and over the grief that Lazarus' sister experienced with the death of Lazarus. Jesus wept. He also wept over the inhabitants of Jerusalem, knowing that, you know, they're going to be, re- because of the fact that they rejected him, that wasn't why he wept, but he wept because he knew that they were going to be attacked and scattered by the Romans within a few short decades. It broke his heart, and so he wept over the city of Jerusalem. And so Jesus, he was a very emotional person. Jesus knows and experienced the same emotions that you and I experience. Why do I bring all this up? Because I think what we need to understand is that Jesus is someone that you can go to with any of your emotions, whatever is heavy on your heart, whatever is just weighing on you. Man, Jesus understands those feelings because he experienced those feelings himself. That's why, we can, that's why Jesus is better than the Levitical high priest. We can go to him. He understands and he knows how you're feeling. And the Bible says here that Jesus cried out vehemently with tears to the Father. And look what it says. The Father was able to save Jesus from death. He cried out to the Father at the Garden of Gethsemane. And God was able to save him. The Father was able to save him. And the Bible says here that the Father even heard the prayers of Jesus. And even though 
uh, Jesus was the Father's Son, what was the Father's answer to him when he cried out in the garden? You know, there are places in the Bible where the Father literally responds to Jesus and spoke to Jesus when he was baptized on the Mount of Transfiguration. There are times when the Father audibly spoke. But in the garden, when Jesus was praying in the Garden of Gethsemane, and he cried out, Lord, you know, not my will, but thy will be done. You know, if, Lord, if it's, any, if it's possible, take this cup from me. Did the Father answer him? It's not recorded that he did. There was silence. And yet Jesus understood that silence was a no. And he knew that it was the Father's will that the Christ should suffer and die on a cross. And so Jesus accepted God's will. And he learned obedience in his suffering, the Bible says. It didn't mean that he learned how to be obedient, you know, as if he was disobedient before, but he learned what is involved in obedience. And that's an important lesson for each of us to understand this morning. God is able to deliver us, and he hears the prayers of his saints. You pray and you go, Lord, I I don't hear the Lord responding to me. He's heard your prayer. If you're one of his children, he hears your prayers. Um, But many times, his answer to us is silently, no. Why? Well, I think just like Jesus, he wants you and I to learn obedience in whatever it is that we're going through. And so Jesus, uh, because Jesus was obedient to the Father's will, even though that path of his will was difficult and painful, he was perfected in obedience. And that word perfected means that he was uh, to carry through completely, to accomplish, to finish, to bring to an end doesn't mean that he was imperfect and now he was made perfect. It means that he completed. What did he do? He completed or he carried through to completion God's plan of salvation through his suffering and death on the cross for your and my sin. And as a result, the Bible says, he became the author of eternal salvation to all who believe him. Or excuse me, to all who obey him. You know, Jesus is the author of your salvation. He's the author of my salvation. There are a lot of people that would like to write their own book. You know, there are a lot of people that want to be the author of their own salvation. But guess what? Jesus is the only author that the Father reads. He's not going to read your book. He's just going to, he only reads Jesus' book. Jesus is the author of your and my salvation. And it says here that he became the author of eternal salvation to all who believe him. Now, both heaven and hell are eternal places, uh, and our salvation is an everlasting salvation, but that's not what this is talking about. What this is talking about, what this is referring to, is the fact that Jesus Christ, His sacrifice transcends time. You know, we're going to be celebrating communion this morning. And, 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 you know, at Calvary Chapel, we don't believe that the, that the juice becomes the blood of Jesus Christ. You know, we don't, we don't believe in that. We believe it represents Jesus' Jesus's blood. And it's so important for you to understand that Jesus' blood was shed 2,000 years ago, but there's power. Remember that, that hymn? I remember the hymn. My mom loves that hymn. There's power in the blood, right? There's power in the precious blood of the Lamb. What that song is all about is the fact that Jesus' blood, even though it was shed 2,000 years ago, it still washes away sin. It still removes the stain of guilt and shame. It's powerful to wash away your and my sin and our guilt today. It hasn't lost its potency. 
And that's what this is referring to. Jesus is the author of eternal salvation. His salvation transcends generations and it transcends time. And then he says, And Jesus was called by God as high priest according to the order of Melchizedek. Now, the writer of Hebrews has much that he wants to speak on this subject and he wants to explain to his readers what he means because you see, as a Hebrew, that would have like a light bulb would have went off or a, you know, a bell would have rang and they're like, what, what, wait a minute, Jesus is a priest according to the order of Melchizedek? Wait a minute. I thought the Levitical priests all descended from Aaron, from the tribe of Levi. And now they're mentioning that Jesus is a high priest according to the order of Melchizedek. Melchizedek wasn't of the tribe of Levi. Levi. And so that would have, you know, that would have like the Hebrews went, huh? And the, and the writer wants to explain to his Jewish readers what he means. But he says, it's hard to explain to you guys. Why? Because you are dull, uh, become dull of hearing. Dull of hearing. What does that mean? Well, the word is nothros, of hearing. And it's an old adjective from the negative word knee and otheo, which means to push. So it means there's no push. And so he's saying there's no push in your hearing. Well, that doesn't make sense to us, does it? Well, what it really means or what it infers is that they were lazy and sluggish in their hearing. Now, it doesn't mean that they were hard of hearing. I've got a little bit of problems. I, you know, I, I can't make out certain words. I've lost my high-frequency pitches so I have a little bit of a hearing loss. My wife thinks I have a lot more than I, than I claim to have, but uh, I might have a selective hearing too, I don't know. <laughs> but um, this isn't talking about being hard of hearing. What this is talking about is an issue with the heart. And notice that the writer tells them that they have become dull, or excuse me, they have become dull of hearing. It wasn't that they never had the ability to comprehend God's word. At one time, like all baby Christians, they hungered for the Word and thrived on it. Do you remember when you were first saved? Or when you gave your heart back to the Lord, whatever it was, and you decided, you know, I'm going to follow Jesus Christ. Do you remember how you just hungered and thirsted for the Word? I remember, man. I went out and bought a brand new Bible. I had a little pocket-sized one. I, uh, I was up in Duluth. And, uh, man, I, I would just, I would bring that thing with me everywhere. I'd go sit down and read my Bible, man. I just, and the Lord was just, it's like I had grown up in the church, but it was like the Word never meant more to me than it did when I gave my heart back to the Lord. Man, I hungered for it and, 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 and was growing and, and just, you know, thriving on it. And God was speaking to me. I'd read something and go, wow, Lord, you're speaking to me. And, and it, just, it just transformed my life and changed my life. And uh, God did the same thing with these Hebrews. God was speaking to them from his word and they were obeying and they were growing. But what happened? Well, what happened to them is what can happen to you and I so easily. It's as, you know, we start ignoring what God's telling us in his word. You know, we're reading and all of a sudden, and the word is an amazing thing. We talked about it last week. It's, you know, it has an amazing thing to reveal our hearts to us. It, it, it like opens up what we really, you know, our motives and our thoughts and our actions. It tells us the truth about ourselves. So we're reading God's word and all of a sudden it's like, oh, oh man, my life is not measuring up to what I'm reading. And so for me, it's like, well, ah, man, I, gotta, I have to change. But what happens is when you and I get that conviction and the Lord speaks about our heart about some area we need to change, and we go, you know what, ah, don't want to deal with that now. Or man, that's too difficult. And we ignore it. Well, that's how we become dull of hearing, as if we start ignoring what God is telling us in His Word. 
And you know the thing is, if you keep doing that, after a while it's like, God's not revealing anything new to me. It's getting kind of boring reading the Bible. It's, it's, it's not doing anything for me anymore. You know why? Because if God's shown you something in his word and you haven't done what he said, he's not going to keep revealing more and more things to you because he wants you to first go back and obey what he's told you to do. And then he's, he takes us step by step in our faith. He doesn't give us his whole program. I'm going to have you do this and this and this and this and this. He just says, hey, you trust me day by day. Follow me each day. I'm going to show you what to do today. You do that, I'll show you what to do tomorrow. That's, that's the relationship with the Lord. And so if you start ignoring what God's doing in your heart, you're going, to, it's, you're going to become dull of hearing. The word's not going to be exciting. It's like the Lord's not speaking to me. Why? Because I'm not doing what he's telling me to do. And so they have become dull of hearing. They've lost, the words become boring to them. And they've lost the desire to read it. You know, if that is describing you this morning, if the word of God's boring to you, if you just really don't have a desire to read it, check your heart. Because it's a heart condition. It's not a hearing condition. Verse 12. He says, For by, though by this time you ought to be teachers, you need someone to teach you again the first principles of the oracles of God. And you've come to need milk and not solid food. For everyone who partakes only of milk is unskilled in the word of righteousness, for he is a babe. But solid food belongs to those who are of full age. That is, those who by reason of use have their uh, senses exercised to discern both good and evil. You know, milk is great and it's necessary for babies. But as babies develop and grow, they need more than just milk to continue growing. You know, our youngest grandson, Jonathan, you know, it seemed like that guy couldn't stop drinking milk. He was just like, milk, milk, milk. He's always thirsty. We're always giving him milk, you know. Uh, but now he's at the point, and, and you can, it's funny with babies. You can kind of watch, you know, at first, all they want is their mother, right? They just want to be nursed and all that, and they want their, their bottle or whatever it is. But then after a while, you start noticing and you have them around the table. At first, they could care less what's going on around them. But after a while, they start looking at what you're eating. Have you noticed that with little babies? It's like they, just, they don't say anything. They're just looking, you know, and you're putting this food in their mouth. And they're like, you know, they're watching it. Why? Because they're starting to hunger for something more. And, they ba- and that's natural. That's how God created them. They need meat. They need protein. They need, they need more than just milk for them to grow stronger and to become healthier and stuff. That's the same with you and I spiritually. And these Hebrews, they are at the point where it's like, man, you're back to drinking milk again. We have to go all over the fundamental things with you guys, the ABCs of the Bible with you, the elementary doctrines. You've come to that point. These Hebrew believers had been Christians long enough that they should have been able to handle the meteor topics like his discussion regarding Melchizedek. In fact, he says, man, you should have been able to disciple others by now. You should have been teachers by now. Now, that doesn't mean that somebody attains a certain level of spirituality or understanding of scriptures that now, okay, I'm a teacher now. I can teach people. No. You know that the Bible says that any believer who's in God's word is competent to teach others. We're competent to counsel one another. We've got a society that kind of tells us that uh, only you know, highly trained professional people can counsel us on spiritual issues. 
That's not true. In fact, Paul in Romans 15 verse 14 says, Now I am myself, he spoke this to the Christians at Rome, Now I myself am confident concerning you, my brethren, that you also are full of goodness, filled with all knowledge, able also to admonish one another. I don't know if you know who Jay Adams is. He's a Christian counselor. He wrote a lot of books. On, uh, he wrote a book called Competent to Counsel. And his whole premise behind that book is that every believer is competent to counsel another believer on using scriptures. We're, we're able to do that. And so it's, it's not like, well, you've reached a certain level of spirituality. Now you can be teachers. He's saying, you know, you've been around the word long enough. You've heard it long enough. You should be able to start discipling other believers. And that, that's true for each of us. Well, how does one become skilled in the word of righteousness, able to teach others? It's right there, by reason of use. Just reading the word, studying God's word, and using God's word in your life. Responding to it. As you're using it, the Lord's going to... It's just, the word becomes part of you. It gets in you, and, and then it flows from you. And then you're able to counsel other people. And that's what wasn't happening with the Hebrews there. And so now we're going to go into chapter 6. And he says, therefore, leaving the discussion of the elementary principles of Christ, let us go on to perfection, not laying again the foundation of repentance from dead works and of faith toward God, of the doctrine of baptisms, of laying on of hands, of resurrection of the dead and of eternal judgment. And this we will do if God permits. For it is impossible for those who were once enlightened and have tasted the heavenly gift and have become partakers of the Holy Spirit, and have tasted the good word of God and the powers of the age to come, if they fall away, to renew them again to repentance, since they crucify again for themselves the Son of God, and put Him to an open shame. Man, this is a tough scripture. It, this, is a, this is a difficult scripture. because, And I've been asked this before. People have come and visited the church, and, and, and uh, not, not often, but I have had people come up to me and go, okay, and they kind of want to understand where you stand in your church, whether they want to be a part of it or not. But one of the questions is, okay, do you believe in eternal security? That's one of the questions. Some people, whether they attend a church or not, hinges on what the, that church teaches or believes regarding eternal security. It's also known as once saved, always saved. And that, that's a big issue. Churches, there's different denominations that believe differently regarding that whole topic. This is not an easy topic. And... Uh, uh, you know, I'm not an expert on it. I'll be honest with you. I have what I believe in my own heart, what I feel convinced about in my own heart, I'm going to share with you in a moment. But the question boils down to, can a believer lose their salvation? Right? I mean, that's, that's what this is really referring to. Can a believer lose their, their salvation? Let me give you my understanding of this passage. And first of all, we need to keep this in context. Okay? He is speaking to Hebrew believers. He's speaking to those who were once enlightened, to those who have tasted the heavenly gift and have become partakers of the Holy Spirit and who have tasted the good word of God and the power of the age to come. Now, some people take this passage of Scripture and they go, well, this is not really talking about believers. This is talking about people who have tasted spiritual, spiritual issues. They've tasted Jesus. They've, they've kind of dabbled in Christianity, but they never really, really were saved. And so this is referring to them. I happen to disagree with that. I think 
the Bible supports pretty strongly, that only born-again believers can become partakers of the Holy Spirit. Not only that, but in Hebrews 2, chapter, uh, chapter 2, verse 9, it tells us that Jesus tasted death for all men. And it's the exact same word that's used here. Uh, you know, Jesus didn't dabble in death. He died, right? I mean, he, he died. He tasted death for you and I. And it's the same word here. These tasted uh, the good word of God. And so what I think this is speaking about is believers. So I think these are believers that uh, the writer is speaking to. The other thing that you need to understand is that this letter was written over 30 years after Christ's resurrection and ascension. It was just a few short years before Jerusalem was uh, destroyed in 70 A.D., And the whole reason for this letter is because the Hebrew believers were tempted to retreat back into their old life under Judaism. If you understand Judaism, Jewish people, they have a lot of tradition. Tradition! You know, they have a lot of the stuff that they do, right? Uh, There's a lot of... and, And you feel really religious. If you came out of maybe the Catholic Church, maybe you understand what I'm talking about. There's a lot of stuff that you do at church that makes you feel spiritual. You, but, but now you come into this relationship with Jesus Christ, and it's all done for you. There's nothing you can do. You just serve the Lord because you love Him, right? You, you, you commit sin, you, you confess your sin, you repent of your sin, and Jesus forgives you. And for some people, it's hard to just accept that. I, we had a Jewish guy here in our church for a number of years, and he would always struggle because he became a born-again believer. He would always struggle with the fact that, man, I, I don't feel like I'm saved anymore, you know? Uh, and he was one of those that felt like he lost his salvation. And, and I don't know if he felt like he had to be born again, again, and again. I, I don't know that. But, but he dealt with those issues of, you know, I, I don't feel spiritual, And if you can imagine these Hebrew believers after decades of of just serving the Lord hasn't returned yet, the temptation was, you know, I want to kind of go back to some of the ceremony. I mean, I understand Jesus is still the Son of God, but I I kind of want to go back to some of the things that happened because it it just makes me feel more spiritual. Well, that's what these Hebrews were wanting to do or tempted to do, at least to go back to some ceremonial aspects of Judaism. But the writer here is warning them that in retreating back into feeling spiritual, doing things to make yourself feel, feel spiritual, their hearts could harden to the point of falling away from those foundational doctrines of the gospel. They could find themselves ultimately returning to what Judaism was doing, trying to justify yourself through dead works. Uh, and eventually, you know, Jewish people, you know, they don't have a temple now, so they can't do it. But they did animal sacrifices to cover for sin. And so the whole thing is eventually you could ultimately return to now Jesus is no longer your sacrifice for sin. This little lamb is a sacrifice for your sin. And you're starting to do things where Jesus no longer is central to your faith or to your salvation. And so he says it's impossible for those who were once enlightened and have tasted the heavenly gift and have become partakers of the Holy Spirit and have tasted the good word of God and the powers of the age to come if they fall away to renew them again to repentance. Falling away. You know, falling away and just falling, I think they're two different things. Falling away 
isn't just like falling into some sin. I think it's actually departing from Jesus himself. You know, the Bible says a righteous man may fall seven times and rise again. Just don't fall that eighth time. No, I'm just kidding. A righteous man may fall seven times and rise again. Peter, I mean, that guy fell big time, right? He fell to the point where he denied Christ three times, cussing and swearing while he was doing it. That's pretty bad. And yet, Jesus forgave him and Jesus restored him. Now, so back to that question, can a person lose their salvation? I believe a person cannot lose their salvation. Okay, I'm going to be on record. Why? Well, Romans 8, 38, 39 says, For I am persuaded that neither death nor life nor angels, nor principalities, nor powers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing shall be able to separate us from the love of God which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. I don't think anyone can take your salvation away from you. I don't think you can lose your salvation. Having said that, however, these are believers that this epistle is written to. These are Christians. This is not a hypothetical situation. This is a real warning to these Hebrew believers. And although uh, this letter was written to Hebrew believers, it's applicable to all Christians. So I think that the warning is real for you and I also. The warning, what is the warning? Don't become dull of hearing God's word. Guard your heart from hardening and falling away from the foundational truth that salvation is through Christ alone. If you, if, you, if you get to a point where Jesus Christ is no longer your salvation, your salvation is no longer through Christ alone, well, yeah, there is, no other, there is no other forgiveness for you. There is no other way for you to earn your salvation. There is no other salvation for you. You can't lose your salvation, but I believe Scripture supports that believers can depart from Christ of their own volition. I honestly believe that. Paul wrote of believers in, uh, I think it's in 1 Timothy, of uh, Hymenaeus and Alexander. And he said that they've rejected their faith, and as a result, their faith suffered shipwreck. And these, those were believers. But here's the deal. If a person is even worried that they have lost their salvation, like this buddy of mine, you, know, you always call it, man, I think I've lost my salvation. I don't think I'm saved anymore. You know, uh, if, if, they are, if you're even worried that you've lost your salvation or afraid that maybe you've committed the unpardonable sin, don't be. Why? Because that's a lie from the enemy. See, the devil loves to quote Scripture out of context and to discourage you and I to get us to give up. Remember, the Bible calls him the accuser, of the brethren. The very fact that you might be concerned about that, you know, did I depart from the Lord or have I committed the unpardonable sin or have I lost my salvation? The very fact that you're feeling that way to me tells me that the Holy Spirit's still working in your heart, convicting you. Maybe there's a sin issue you got to deal with. You know, the Holy Spirit doesn't convict us for no reason. But you haven't lost your salvation. The very fact that you're concerned, because I think, excuse me, going through changes here. No, I think, (laughs) I'm a late bloomer, what can I say? Um, I think that if, you know, uh, I lost my train of thought there. Um, Oh, if a person really has fallen away and their heart has gotten that hard, they're not going to care whether they lost their salvation or not because they don't believe it anymore. Who cares? They've departed. 
It's sad to know. I actually know an individual that feels that way. They swear up and down that they were a born-again believer in Jesus Christ, but now they totally reject Jesus. He's no longer their Savior. And there's no shame. There's no, and, and I'm frightened for that individual. Now, I'm not going to go up to him and say, well, you've lost your salvation. You're going to hell. I'll warn him, and I have warned him. But that's between God and him. Only God knows his heart. I, I, don't, I can't judge him. But I can warn him, hey, you're on, very sli- you're on a slippery slope there, buddy. You're playing with fire. But he doesn't care. So I think if, you even, if there's even a smidgen of thinking like, oh, I wonder if I committed the unpardonable sin, man, you, the Holy Spirit's still working in your heart. So don't, so don't feel all convicted. Don't get all freaked out or anything like that. If you've fallen into sin, and get this, even if you've denied Christ like Peter did, even if you've blasphemed his name, that's pretty bad, right? Even if you've done that, man, all you got to do is repent, turn back to Jesus, he'll forgive you and restore you. Because Jesus said, the one who comes to me, now by no means cast out. So, can you lose your salvation? No, I don't think you can. But I think you can depart from the Lord of your own volition. Now, that's where my understanding of Scripture at this point, you know, maybe later on the Lord will reveal stuff to me and maybe I'll change my position, but this is what I believe the Scripture supports. Well, then the writer gives an illustration of the consequences of falling away. Verse 7, he says, For the earth which drinks in the rain that often comes upon it and bears herbs useful for those by whom it is cultivated receives blessings from God. But if it bears thorns and briars, it is rejected and near to being cursed, whose end is to be burned. What he's saying, you know, the picture here, land that's been cultivated and has seed sown on it. It sounds like one of the parables, right? Land that's been cultivated, has seed sown on it. When the rains come, man, you expect that it's going to bear fruit. It's fulfilled the purpose for which the person cultivated it. The farmers cultivated that land. It's fulfilled its purpose. It's producing fruit. And the message that the writer is giving this in this illustration of the Hebrews is this. Your hearts have been cultivated and prepared to receive the word. Do you ever wonder why we do worship before we do a teaching of, you know, in church? And I don't know if every church does it, but this church, we do worship. And then we we get into the word because we believe that worship prepares your heart to receive the seed of the word of God. It it gets you into part where you stop focusing on yourself. You start focusing on the Lord. You know, the Lord's starting to the Holy Spirit starting to do a work in your heart and kind of preparing you start worshiping the Lord. And then your heart is more ready to receive what he has to speak to you. If we just came in here, like, everybody sit down, let's get into the Word. No, God, the Holy Spirit can work, okay? The Holy Spirit doesn't need a, a little program or anything like that. Holy Spirit will work anyway and does. But we try to make it so that people's hearts are prepared, they're cultivated. And so what the Hebrew writer here, the writer to the Hebrews is saying, man, your hearts have been cultivated and prepared to receive seed. You've been given the seed of the Word, And the Holy Spirit has watered the word, the soil of your heart. Where's the fruit? I'm expecting fruit. But you guys are dull of hearing. How do you and I ensure we're producing fruit in our lives? Really pretty easy. Jesus said in John 15 verse 5, I am the vine, you are the branches. He who abides in me and I in him bears much fruit. For without me you can do nothing. 
All we need to do is abide in Jesus Christ. Abide in Christ and we'll produce much fruit. And you don't even need to worry about falling away because you'll be abiding in Christ. You'll be be fruitful as, as Christians. Just abide in him. But now the writer, you know, the writer, he's warned the Hebrew believers. And, uh, you know, if he entered the letter right here, like, the, uh, dear, and I happen to believe it's Paul that wrote this. You know, that's my own personal opinion. They could say, dear Paul, have a nice day. You know, that, that's the end of his letter. Can you imagine how they would feel? Oh, man, <laughs> lost my salvation. I'm being warned about that. He doesn't leave them in that place. He wants to encourage them. And so verse 9, he says, But beloved, man, we're confident of better things concerning you. Yes, things that accompany salvation, though we speak in this manner. For God is not unjust to forget your work and labor of love, which you have shown toward his name, in that you have ministered to the saints and do minister. And we desire that each one of you show the same diligence to the full assurance of hope until the end, that you do not become sluggish, but imitate those who through faith and patience inherit the promises. So the writer of Hebrews, and again, I think it's Paul, but other people disagree. Whoever that writer is, he loved the Hebrew believers. Why do I say that? Well, he loved them enough to speak the truth to them. That's an important thing. He loved them enough to speak the truth to them. He loved them enough to warn them but he's not condemning them and he's not writing them off. He's believing the best about them. And you know what? That's what love does, right? 1 Corinthians 13 verse 6 says, Love does not rejoice in iniquity, but rejoices in the truth. Uh, And then I'm just going to add, Love bears all things. Love believes all things. Love hopes all things. And love endures all things. And the writer here, he's believing the best of his people. He said, you know, yeah, I'm writing about people that can lose their stuff, but I'm confident that's not you guys. Man, I've got hope in you. God's not finished with you. He loves these guys. He says, beloved, we are confident of better things concerning you. Yes, things that accompany salvation, though we speak in this manner. And then he encourages them, for God is not unjust to forget your, la- your work and labor of love, which you have shown toward his name, in that you have ministered to the saints and do minister. You know what I love about God? God chooses to forget your and my sin. I remember my sin. Sometimes I confess it over and over and over again, and I need to remember, hey, God, it's like, you know, I, you, you, com- you commit a sin, you confess it. The Bible says that if we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us of our sins. But you, don't you ever sometimes feel like I need to confess more? I, I haven't confessed enough. So I gotta, it was a really bad sin. So I really got to confess it over and over and over again. I can imagine God in, in heaven. You know, we say, Lord God, will you forgive me? I, I've committed this sin, and, and the Bible says God forgives us. And the next day, you know, I really committed that sin yesterday, God. Would you forgive me? He's like, huh? What are you talking about? Because he chooses to forget your and my sin. What a blessing that is. We don't forget when people sin against us, do we? We should, but we don't. Our human nature, I remember when people hurt me. I remember those things people said that, you know, they really kind of cut kind of deep. But God chooses to forget our sins. But... God chooses to remember or to not forget those things that you and I do for him. What a good God that we serve. You know, it's interesting to me that at the sheep and goat judgment, it's the uh, the judgment of the nations described in Matthew 25. If you've ever read that before, uh, the righteous 
among the nations are being reminded, or excuse me, are being rewarded for having ministered to Jesus. You know, you, you, you visited me in the hospitals. You know, you, you did all these things for me. And the righteous say, oh, when did we do that, Lord? And the Lord says, hey, when you did it to the least of them, you did it to me. Jesus was remembering. They, they forgot. They didn't even realize they were ministering to the Lord, but God didn't forget. And that's what God's trying to tell, or the writer's trying to tell these Hebrews. Hey, don't grow weary in ministering, because God doesn't forget those things. And that's a word to you and I this morning, in how when you and I minister to saints, we minister to one another, man, God does not forget those things. Even if you minister to somebody and they never thank you, Maybe they don't even realize that you minister to them. And that's happened, right? You've done things, you've, you know, you've anonymously given someone something, or maybe you've done something at their house, or whatever, and, and they didn't even know that you, you know, maybe, you know, maybe you went and washed their car. I know that's a bad example, but maybe you washed their car this summer, and they didn't even know that you washed their car. You know, they come out, and they just, they don't even think about it. You didn't receive any reward from them, no thanks from them. You can get, kind of grow discouraged if you keep ministering to people and they never say anything. But the encouragement here is that Jesus doesn't forget. Anything that you do for one another out of love, ministering to people, man, he doesn't forget. We may even forget some of those things, like those righteous among the nations, but he doesn't forget. In Matthew 6, verse 1, Jesus said, Take heed that you do not do your charitable deeds before men to be seen by them. Otherwise, you have no reward from your Father in heaven. Therefore, when you do a charitable deed, do not sound a trumpet before you as the hypocrites do in the synagogues and in the streets, that they may have glory from men. Assuredly, I say to you, they have their reward. But when you do a charitable deed, do not let your left hand know what your right hand is doing, that your charitable deed may be, uh, may be in secret. And your Father who sees in secret will himself reward you openly and so the writer's just encouraging these hebrews you guys you've you've ministered to people man god's god is not unjust that he's going to forget what you've done that's a word of encouragement to them he's spoken the truth to them he's warned them but he's also wants to encourage them because he loves them and he says and we desire that each one of you show the same diligence to the full assurance of hope until the end that you do not become sluggish but imitate those who through faith and patience inherit the promises I'm going to paraphrase it. Basically, he says, we desire that each one of you continue diligently ministering to the saints until your hope is realized. What's that hope? It's when your and my faith becomes sight. Man, just continue diligently ministering. And then he says, we desire that you do not become sluggish. That's that same word back there about being dull of hearing. So we desire that you don't become dull or lazy in your faith. Keep pressing on. Don't ignore God's word or grow indifferent to it. And then he says, we desire that you imitate the faithful men, men and women who before, excuse me, we desire that you imitate the faithful men and women before you who patiently waited to inherit the promise of eternal life. The people in the Bible, they're there. Their stories are there for you and I to imitate their lives. The good parts of their lives, right? <laughs> we, in our men's Bible study, we were talking about Solomon and David. And, and those guys, they did some pretty bad things, you know. But, but it's amazing that the Lord still loves them and, and still God still used them. Hope for you and I. But we're to pattern our lives after those. And 
the rest of this chapter and going into chapter 6, he's going to be talking about Abraham and Melchizedek. And we'll get to that next week. But um, the encouragement for you guys today, don't grow dull. Don't ignore God's word or become indifferent to it. Keep on ministering, man. Don't, don't grow weary ministering. And pattern your life after those who did inherit the promises. They're in here for us. Read about them. Learn about them. You know, as the Lord speaks to you, man, apply in your life what the Lord shows you through these stories and through these lessons in the Bible. Um, we're going to have communion this morning. So why don't we go ahead and go to the Lord in prayer, and I'll have the worship team or worship person. It looks like worship team come up here.